We uh, end our series, our 12-week series, believe it or not, on the letter to the Ephesians today. Um, And it has been uh, my joy to take us through this letter of the Ephesians. Not only has it been so rich uh, of a letter, but I think it has helped to, at least for me, uh, reorient my mind and my heart on what the church is supposed to look like. This was a church going through a lot of turmoil. This was a church in Ephesus that was going through a lot of opposition and a lot of trials. And it was Paul's heart to write this letter for them, to give them perspective. How is the church supposed to look? How is the church supposed to operate? How is the church supposed to function in the world, in the face of of opposition. And one of the things that we have tried to establish early on in this series is that we see that the church is ultimately about the people. That the church is people, not so much a building or an organization. It is organism over organization. It is people over process. And it really, the church is about the people of God from every tongue, tribe, and nation coming together under the banner of the cross of Jesus Christ, all worshiping God. And that is a beautiful thing when we begin to see that that is the picture of the church. And everybody has a story. Everybody has a story of how they came to Christ, how they came to church, how God has worked in their life to bring them to this moment where we can be considered one as one body. God is making a new humanity, a new creation. And actually the worship team put together a video that I just want us to look at. And it was shown at the night of worship. But I think this video really takes that idea home, drives it home, this idea that the church is about people and everyone has a story. When I was nine, I, I was diagnosed with ADHD. I was in the pit of despair, brought on by the consequences of alcoholism. For 14 years, I struggled with paralyzing anxiety. Until my 20s, I only had an intellectual and temporal faith. I struggled with perfectionism. I believed that my relationship with God and everyone else depended upon my performance. Growing up, I found acceptance and approval in being right. I struggled daily with the fear that I will not be accepted by others. Addiction stole my husband from me and my boy's father from them. I've been through a lot recently. Changes, disappointment, the joy of the birth of a granddaughter, the loss of my dad. I was in a season of sadness. Anxiety, guilt, and fear has ever been before me. But Jesus reminded me in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that His grace is sufficient and His strength is made perfect in weakness. I'm eternally grateful to God for lifting me out of that pit and placing my feet on the rock. But I found grace in my brokenness and Jesus has me right where He wants me to be. I thank God for the confidence that He has given me to know that I can trust in Him. Then I received eternal life. Now I have that assurance of going to heaven. And then the gospel showed me the truth about grace and forgiveness. Now I know it's not what I do, but what Jesus has done. And I have experienced unforgettable joy and peace. But I have the blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. This is my story. Jesus, 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 Jesus is my story. Amen.
And that is the story, that is our story, it's the story of our church. And so with that in mind, we are looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 6 as we end this study, I Believe in the Church. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, and we'll read from verse 10 through verse 20 in a passage that is known, I'm sure, to many as the whole armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 Hear the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes as your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of grace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And God, Lord, would you do something remarkably powerful with these words. Your words are living and active. And so, Lord, we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would make us new because of these words. Lord, reveal yourself to us through the reading of your word. And Lord, I pray that you would press these words down deep into our weary souls so that we might be made new. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Finally, be strong. Paul is writing this, this idea that everything I've written in light of all of this, he says, finally, of all of these incredible truths that he has written, he wants us to remember one thing. Finally, be strong. We love to be strong. It's all about being strong. Even from an early age, we see little kids. What do they want to do? They want to be strong. We read uh, one of my son, uh, Preston, one of his favorite books is We're Going on a Bear Hunt. And, and we're going on a bear hunt. It's this story, and it, it kind of repeats itself over and over again. But the main chorus is this. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. And the whole idea of this book is that you run around the house and you go through the grass and you repeat this chorus and then you have to go through the water and you have to go up the mountains and you have to go through all of these things that you have to get through to catch the bear and you keep repeating over and over again. And, and for my son, he insists that the entire family processes around the house in one long train and we're all chanting the song and we're beating our breast and we're saying this in a loud voice and we want to be strong. My son wants to be strong. We're going on a bear hunt. When uh, a few years ago after the Boston Marathon, uh, the, the bombing at the Boston Marathon, what did everybody, what was the, what was the motto for Boston? We are 
Boston strong. And it wasn't just for those people that lived in Boston, but it was for people all around the world that wore the little wristbands. They had t-shirts. They said, we are Boston strong. A few years before that, what was the big Lance Armstrong campaign? It was, we are all going to live strong. We love this idea of being strong. And Paul himself is saying, be strong. Be strong in the Lord. And so the question is, for the Ephesian church and for our church, if the call is to be strong, then that must mean that there's some opposition. There must be some bear hunt out there that we need to be strong to live and to be up against and to be ready for. And so the question is, if there is opposition, if there is an enemy, and the Ephesian church, I guarantee you, would clearly say, yes, there is opposition, there is an enemy. We are a church in the first century that is under tremendous persecution and tremendous attack and tremendous opposition. Then the question is, so if these words were just as relevant as for us today as they were 2,000 years ago, the question for us this morning, if we need to be strong as a church, the question then is, who is the enemy? Who is the opposition? And so I want to take us through this passage this morning and answer three questions. Who is the enemy? What does the enemy do to us? And what can we do about it? Who's the enemy? What does the enemy do to us? And what can we do about it? So the question is, who is the enemy? If Paul is calling us to be strong, who is the enemy? And every single person in here would feel at some level like there is an enemy out there. There is an opposition out there. But the problem is we probably wouldn't all be on the same page as far as who the real enemy is. Who is the ultimate enemy that we face as a church and we face as Christians and they were facing 2,000 years ago in the church of Ephesus? Is it ISIS? Is it culture? Is it Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton? Is it the person sitting next to you? Who is the enemy? And you laugh, but sometimes we, we act in the church as if we're each other's enemy. It was Gandhi uh, in India when asked, what is the greatest opposition to Christianity in India? You know what Gandhi said? The Christians. Because they're always fighting each other. And sometimes even in the church we treat each other like we're the enemy. So the question is, who is the enemy that we need to be strong against? Is it culture? Is it the government? Is it the people out there? Is it the people in here? Who in the world is the enemy? And verse 11 and 12 puts it into perspective for us who the ultimate enemy is. He says, put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you might be able to stand against the devil. For we do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood. What Paul wants to put us into perspective is, yes, you need to be strong to battle against the enemy and to face the opposition, but never mistake that the enemy, the ultimate enemy in opposition is here, that it's, that it's flesh and blood, that you're minimizing the enemy, you're minimizing the opposition. When we begin to say, well, maybe it's culture, and maybe it's the liberals, and maybe it's them, and maybe it's th those people over there, and maybe it's people that are not like us, or maybe it's people, like I said, sitting in the pew with us that like something that I'm not, that want to get something that I don't have, or have something that I don't have, whatever it might be, what Paul wants us to understand that yes, there is an enemy, and he's far more greater than we could ever imagine, and he's greater than flesh and blood. Who does he say the enemy is? 
He says in verse 11 that the enemy is the devil. And right there, some of you just checked out the devil. Because we don't have categories for that in our Western culture. You go to Asia, you go to Africa, and you go to Latin American countries, they have a, a, a keen understanding of spiritual warfare. But North America and Western Europe, we don't have categories for spiritual warfare. We don't have categories for the devil. For some of us, it's uncomfortable talking about the devil. The devil? Is that the guy that the costume at Party City or Halloween City that you, that, you know, that we see that it's the costume with the guy with the horns and the pitchfork and the tail? I mean, what, that's our category for the devil in North America. But Paul wants us to understand, no, there is an enemy and it is not flesh and blood. It is the devil. Why don't we, why don't we like to admit that the devil is the enemy? Because we don't like to admit that there is a transcendent evil. It's hard for us. In our Western culture, we want to minimize it to natural causes. We want to minimize war and racism and a shooting in Orlando two weeks ago and greed and cruelty to natural causes. And what our culture has told us is if we simply fix these natural causes through better psychology and sociology, then the the problems of evil will dissipate. It's hard for us to admit that there is a transcendent evil because our world and our culture says, no, it's through psychology and sociology. It, it, It has to be a natural cause that leads people to shoot people in a nightclub. It must be a natural cause that causes racism or causes greed or causes cruelty. And what Paul is saying is, no, the enemy or opposition is not flesh and blood, but it is the devil. There is a transcendent evil. There is a transcendent evil that we cannot figure out on our own and we cannot fix. So question number one, who is the ultimate enemy of the church? Who is the ultimate enemy of the Christian? It is the devil. There is a transcendent evil that we cannot overlook. So the question is, if the devil is the enemy, the devil is the opposition that Paul is saying we need to be strong against, the question begs, what are the schemes of the devil? It says it right here in verse 11 that there are schemes of the devil. But what are the schemes? How does the devil work? What does the devil do? Well, we first have to answer the question, what's the definition of devil? It's the one who lies. It's the one who slanders. So we have to first recognize that the devil in his schemes against, his, against God's church, in the devil's schemes against the Christian, he wants to lie and slander. And we could go through a hundred different lies that the devil gives us, but I want to give you two categories, two overarching categories that the devil uses as his schemes. And they're this, these, these two schemes of the devil, temptation on the one hand, an accusation on the other. The devil uses the schemes of temptation and accusation. What do I mean by that? How does the devil use the scheme of temptation? He uses the the scheme of temptation for you to not understand the holiness of God. He hides God from you, and what he gets you to believe is this, that you really don't need God. God is somebody I entertain for an hour on Sunday mornings, but I really don't need him. Because you know what? On Wednesday, when I'm making that deal in the office, come on, it's really me, right? I mean, God doesn't really have anything to do with this. 
I mean, when, 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 when life is hard during the middle of the week and I'm working with my kids, I mean, God is nowhere to be found. Like, I just don't need God. Like, I've got this on my own. And so what God, what the devil is constantly trying to do is to deceive us in believing that we really don't need God. And what is he ultimately trying to prove? He's ultimately trying to prove that you're really not that bad. You're really not that desperate. You really don't need a God. Because you're not that bad, as maybe the preacher tells you. You're not that far worse off than maybe the Bible would lead you to believe. And the the devil tempts you with believing that you're not that bad, that you're not that worse off, that you really don't need a Savior, that you really don't need God, that I can live my life independent from God and life will just go on fine. I don't need him in business. I don't need him in my family. I don't need him for success. I don't need him in my career. I don't really need him in life because I'm really not that desperate. That's on the one hand how the devil tempts us. How does he tempt how, or, or deceives us? He deceives us with temptation. How else does he deceive us? He deceives us with accusation. How? God could never love me. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. I guarantee you, every single person on that video that we saw, at one point in their life said, my life is so messed up, there is no way God could love me. And they live every single day with the burden of accusation. That there's no way I could be forgiven. There's no way I could be loved. There's no way I could be accepted. There's no way I could be approved. And you see what the devil wants to do? He tempts you on the one hand. You really don't need God. You're not that bad. And for others, he tempts, he deceives you with accusation. You can never be as loved as the gospel tells you. You can never be as loved as the words we just sang. You can never be as loved as the preacher tells you you are. Don't believe it. And so what the enemy does, the devil, is he, and his schemes, is he deceives you and lies to you in temptation and accusation. On the one hand, I'm not that bad. On the other hand, God, I am so bad that God could never love me. And what ultimately Paul is concerned about here in Ephesians chapter 6 is that the Ephesian Christians and the Christians here at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church will get done this letter and go out and say, there's no way I could really believe this. There's no way that God really reconciles us to one another. There's no way that God really sent his son to be my substitute. There's no way that God loves me as much as he says he does in in the letter to the Ephesians. The greatest work of the devil is for you to take the letter of the Ephesians and toss it to the side and say, there's no way that this could be true for me. That is the scheme the scheme of accusation, and the scheme of temptation. Yes, you are far worse off than you think you are, but you are far more loved than you could ever imagine, and the devil would never want you to believe that. So if the first thing is understanding who the enemy is, it's not flesh and blood, but it is a transcendent evil in the devil. If number two is understanding the schemes of the devil, then the question is, what in the world do we do about it? What is the solution? And that's where the armor of God comes in. 
You see, what Paul wants us to understand in verse 13 through 17 is that there is a means of protecting you against the evil one. There is a means to protect you against the one that would hope to steal and rob you of the joy and the peace and the security that you have in Jesus Christ. And what does he do? What does Paul say? He lists the armor of God. And he says, put on the armor of God. In verse 14, what does he tell you to do? Fasten the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes of your feet, the gospel of peace. Put on the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and take up the sword of the Spirit. So he says, put on all these things. Put on the armor of God. question is, where do I find them? Is this on aisle nine at Target? Where do, I, where do I find these things? Well, we have to understand what are these things before we can understand where we can find them. Where we find them is where? Through Jesus Christ. You see, what Paul is trying to tell us is, yes, there is an armor to protect you and defend you from the enemy, and that armor is Jesus Christ himself. He is the epitome of all of these things. He is the essence of faith. He is the epitome of righteousness, right? The Bible tells us that we have a righteousness that is not of our own, but it is from God and it is found in Jesus Christ. We have salvation, and who is the epitome of salvation? We have peace, and who is the epitome of peace? What Paul is trying to describe here is Jesus Christ. And what Paul is trying to do in Ephesians chapter 6 is he's taking us back to Ephesians chapter 1. What do I mean by that? Tell them I said hi, whoever that is. Um, what is, what is. What is Paul trying to do here in Ephesians chapter 6? He's taking us back to Ephesians 1. You don't remember Ephesians 1, don't worry. What happens in Ephesians 1? Paul says, be found in Christ, be hidden in Christ, be in Jesus Remember, he wants to set up and understand that for the church of Jesus Christ to understand that your position is found where? In Christ. And so what he's trying to do here with the armor of God is he's saying, I don't want that to be theoretical language for you, this idea of being in Christ. He says, I actually want it to happen to you. I want you to be covered by Christ. I want the whole armor of God to cover you to surround you, to engulf you, to hide you, that you are found in Christ. That is the armor of God. The armor of God is Jesus Christ himself. What did God do to defeat sin and death? Who did he send? He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to be the armor of God to defeat sin and death once and for all. And the gift that God gives to his church is that he just doesn't take Jesus and nail him to a cross and say your sins are forgiven. He says, I'm going to continue to give you Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit that you can be dressed and covered in all of the attributes of Jesus. That the great gift that God gives his church, the great gift is that he not only brings us into the family of God, he keeps us in the family of God. And how does he keep us in the family of God? How does he defend us from the schemes of the devil, from failing to believe that all of this is really true? He gives us Jesus, the armor of God. Because it is in Jesus that the problem of temptation and accusation in one moment is solved forever. What? What are, you, what are you talking about, Rob? It's at the cross, and only at the cross, 
that on the one hand, we are told, yes, you are so bad, you are so sinful, you are so broken, that it requires God sending his son to be nailed to a cross. But at the exact same time, don't miss this, at the exact same time, the problem of accusation is solved as well. That you are so loved and so adored that Jesus would be willing to lay down his life for you. All at the same time, when we sing there is power at the cross, we are not just singing anything. We are saying, yes, there is something that happened that changed this world forever. That simultaneously, that we were told we are so bad, we are so far worse off than we could ever imagine, that God had to send his son to be nailed to a cross, but we are so loved and approved at the same time that Jesus would be willing to lay down his life. That all happens simultaneously at the cross, and that is good news. He is the armor of God. R.C. Sproul, R.C. Sproul says it best. He says, the only reason you persevere as a Christian is because God, by his grace, is continually preserving you. The only reason you persevere as a Christian is because God, and by his grace, is continually preserving you. How? By the armor of God. God knew in his wisdom that we would see enough this side of heaven to leave the faith. We would not only see enough outside of the church, we would see enough inside the church, right? Unfortunately, we would see enough in the church for us to go... I don't know if I can do this anymore. But thank God that our faith and our standing with God is not dependent upon us, but God continuing to pour out his grace upon us and preserving us so that we can persevere in the faith that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. There's this word, and I want to end here. There's this word, though, in this whole idea of the armor of God and being defended and protected by God, there's this word that we see four times in the passage I read this morning, and it's the word stand. It's this idea of standing. And we see it four times here, and, and the word stand is maybe not what you think it means. So when we think of stand, we go, this is, I'm standing. I'm on my two feet, right? I'm standing. But the ancients had a different idea of standing, See, the ancients, under the understanding of standing was a position of goodwill. It was a position of power. It was a position of being approved. It's where we get the phrase to be in good standing. That you're in the good standing with your bank. You're in the good standing with your creditors. Uh, uh, a corporation's in good standing if they file all their paperwork. You're in good standing if you pay all your membership dues. Whatever it might be, you, we are constantly living in a world or in a life that we want to be in what? Good standing. And good standing means to be what? To be approved. To be fully exonerated, to be fully accepted, to be fully approved. There is nothing that you owe. There is no debt. That's what it means to stand according to the agents. And so what Paul is trying to say here is, yes, there is an enemy, but you will be able to stand. You will be in good standing. Why? Because of the armor of God, which is what? Jesus Christ 
You see, the answer to everything, not just in Sunday school class when you were a little kid, really is Jesus. It really is. He is the one that allows us to be in good standing. Why? What did Jesus ultimately do? He takes our sin and exchanges it for his righteousness so that we are forever defended and forever protected and forever loved and forever approved because of the armor of God, which is Jesus Christ. That's a good word. I read recently about a girl, a girl by the name of Renee. She was 19 years old, and there was a ministry that she's part of in Orlando. It's in a ministry to teenagers dealing with drug addiction. And they found, this ministry found Renee when she was only 19. And the leader of this ministry says, Renee is only 19, and when I met her, cocaine is fresh in her system. She hasn't slept in 36 hours, and she won't for another 24. It is a familiar blur of coke, pot, pills, and alcohol. She has agreed to meet with us, to listen, and to let us pray. We asked Renee to come with us, to leave this broken night, and she'll say, she says she'll go to rehab tomorrow. She just isn't ready today. It's too great of a change. We pray, we say goodbye. She has known so much great pain, haunted dreams as a child, the near constant presence of evil ever since she was a baby. She has felt nothing but pain and agony from all of the people in her life. She has battled depression and addiction. She has even attempted suicide. Her arms only remember razor blades, filthy scars that speak of self-inflicted wounds. Six hours after I meet her, she is feeling trapped. Two groups of friends offering opposite ideas. Everyone is asleep. The sun is rising, and she gets up before anyone and drinks long from a bottle of liquor. She locks herself in the bathroom and proceeds to cut herself once again. The nurse at the treatment center finds the wound several hours. The center has no detox, names her too great of risk, and they don't accept her. For the next five days, she is ours to love. We become her hospital, and the possibility of healing fills our living room with life. This was with a beginning of a new ministry for my husband and I. We had no idea what we were doing. It is unspoken, and there are only a few of us, but we will be her church the body of Christ coming alive to meet her needs, to write love on her arms. Is that the most beautiful thing you've ever heard? And that was actually what they eventually named the ministry, to write love on her arms. How does this ministry function? The woman says, we take that broken girl, we treat her like a famous princess, and we give her the best seats in the house. We buy her coffee for the coming down, books and bathroom things for the days ahead, and we tell her something true when all she's known are lies. We tell her that God loves her. No, God really loves her. We tell her about forgiveness. We tell her about the possibility of freedom. We tell her she was made to dance in white dresses. All these things, all these things are true. To live a life, to live that life against the enemy who constantly threatens us to steal our joy, to steal our hope, 
to buy that lie that we are really not loved, really not that accepted. That can only, can only be found in Jesus Christ. Thomas Brooks, Puritan preacher, said, Brethren, for those that are under accusation, look at all your sins as charged to the account of Christ. You know the wife who said to the bill collector, go and talk to my husband? May the believer say to the devil, go talk to my Christ. Is there an enemy? You bet. And the answer for that enemy is his church. The church of Jesus Christ that proclaims a message of the cross because the enemy will whisper in your ear every day that you don't need God, that you can't be approved, that you can't be accepted, that this whole God thing is just not worth it. And I pray, I pray that as a church, that Coral Ridge would always look to the cross, that we would put on the whole armor of God through the power of the Spirit. We would look at the enemy in the eye and say, get behind me, I am covered by Jesus. And if Jesus is truly the armor of God, then let's be a church. Let's be a church that takes this armor and tells the whole world that there is one who rescues, there is one who defends, there is one who approves, and there is one who forever loves. Let's take the armor of God to the entire world because it's good news.